Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 8. We're going we're gonna to have a lengthy passage. We're going to cover it this morning. We're going to be in chapter 8, verse 23, through um, verse 8 of chapter 9. And we're going to see the authority of the king. And to illustrate kind of the main point, I, I want to tell you a, a brief story. Back in 2012, um, I took my first international mission trip. Um, at that time, I, I went with a group from the church that I was serving at to the Democratic Republic of Congo, the DRC. Um, so it's a, it's a country in, in Eastern Africa. And so as I was there, it was a, a great trip, great experience. But one of the realities that was firmly cemented in my mind um, as a result of that trip was the reality that legitimate, trustworthy authority changes the way that we live. Legitimate, trustworthy authority changes the way that we live. And I say that because they're in the DRC. I mean, everywhere you looked, there were military, law enforcement personnel everywhere, which isn't necessarily a problem. However, these personnel were wearing different uniforms. There's no, there's no oh, that's the police. It was like, oh, there, there's a uniform that looks like police, and there's a uniform that looks like police, and there's a uniform that looks like police, and, and so they were all over. Numerous different uh, agencies or, or uniforms, signs of authority, and, and all of them, regardless of uniform, even regardless of age, every single person in authority had a gun. I'm not talking about the kind of gun that goes in a holster on your hip. I'm talking about the one that, that goes on a strap around your shoulders. And so I remember thinking there in that foreign nation, as we were out and about, I remember thinking, what would I do if there were an emergency? So, so in a moment of crisis, what would I do if I were to be attacked or, or in danger? What uniform am I supposed to go to? And having, wrestle, having to wrestle with that question is pretty alarming, but, but even more alarming is that, as we would later come find out in one interaction with, with one of these sets of authority, even more alarming was the fact that most of those men in uniforms, though they had authority, were not trustworthy. And so that legitimate authority holders could not be trusted, especially by, by white foreigners who had come there. And so that was even more alarming. And what I realized is that knowing who has authority is important, but even more important than that is knowing that the person with authority is trustworthy. And so in these three sections or stories from our passage this morning, we're going to see that Jesus Christ, the King, is the one who has all authority. We're going to see very, very specifically that his authority is unrivaled and it's not even close. And although we'll see the individuals in these verses have to wrestle with this display of authority, they're going to have to wrestle with, well, who is this man? We recognize it as those who know the end of the story, who have, who have the, the, the benefit of time and, and church history. We know that the, the only reason Jesus has this authority is that he is the one in whom two whole and perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together, right? He is unique among all men. He's one person who is very God and very man, yet one Christ, two natures, one person. We know that. They're wrestling with this, but we also know that his authority was ultimately shown, not in these miracles that we're going to see, but in laying down his life for sinners like us. That is the ultimate display of authority of this God-man. And so we know that this display of authority, all that we see, points to the, re the death and resurrection, which proves and underlies everything that he is trustworthy. And knowing that the person with all authority can be trusted changes how we live. And so that's, that's my hope for, for me this morning. That's my hope for us. So let me read the passage. 
You can follow along in your Bibles. We're not going to have it on the screen, so, so pick up the Bible in front of you or, or share with the person beside you. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, through chapter 9, verse 8. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 23. And when he, that is Jesus, when he got in the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, that is Jesus, was asleep. And they they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Verse 28, And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, that is Jesus, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And Jesus said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and in and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over, and he came into his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "'Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven.'" And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Well, let's let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at this passage, there's no question as to who is the main point, as, as to what you would have us to know from these. And that is that your son has all authority. And so I pray that we would behold the glory of the only begotten, that that we would behold the one whose radiance is of the glory and exact imprint of your nature, the one who upholds the universe by his power, the one who, in, in light of all that, made purification for our sins and then sat down at your right hand and is even now interceding for us. And so I pray that we would behold the glory of this one with all authority who laid down his life for us. I pray that your word would do what my words can't. Lord, we recognize our need. I recognize my need. And so I pray that you would transform us, that you would change us as a result of of beholding the glory of the only begotten. 
And so do that for, for our sake, but also for your, your name's sake. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, just as we begin, just, just a word of caution, these verses could very easily be three sermons. And so part of the difficulty that I had in this, this week trying to organize this sermon was to do, to organize it in such a way that, that did justice to all that's here without it being 90 minutes long. So I've organized, and I think it does justice, the 90 minutes are what's yet to be determined. So, so we'll see. You've been warned. Um, but, but simply recognize that, that authority, the authority of Christ, the authority of the king is the main idea. Our outline is just going to be these three different scenes. And so first we're going to see the authority over a storm in verses 23 through 27 of chapter 8. Then the authority over demons, to that, that last verses 28 through 34 of chapter 8. And then finally the first eight verses of chapter 9, we'll see authority over sin which, which I'll say is the ultimate display of the authority of Jesus. But let's start there, the authority over the storm, verses 23 through 27. So, so Matthew, we're continuing in this study, and Matthew picks up the narrative with this event, this, this storm on the scene. And in fact, this event is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels. And so the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, okay? People say they, they have a same source. So synoptic means the same source. So those are the three, then John is all alone because a lot of his material is, is unique. But the three synoptics all record this storm on the sea, the they all record the healing of the demoniac, and they all record the, the healing of the paralytic. So all of this is recorded, and there's lots of details in, in the other Gospels that Matthew doesn't record. Matthew is to the point because Matthew wants us to recognize the authority of Jesus. And so that's all he cares about. And so here at the beginning, the, the, this account of the Sea of Galilee is, a, is, a, is recorded three different times. And, and so the Sea of Galilee is probably more like a lake in, in our understanding, but there's this big body of water. And, and the setting, geographical setting, is there's steep hills all around it. And so it was quite common for, for cold air from the mountains or the hills to come down and meet with the warm air over the water, and, and storms would pop up immediately, quickly. And so that it was known for that. And so Matthew says, he gets in the boat, his disciples follow him, and behold, that word behold, it's, it's like, look, there rose a great storm on the sea and the, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. And, and so we get this scene as, as this, they're on the sea, they're in the boat, an, a normal occurrence, but, but then the storm arises. And Matthew helps us get a better picture of the storm. So first he says, and it's, not, it's not just a storm, it's a great storm. So that's the first thing he does. It's a, a great storm. But second, the word he uses for storm isn't the normal word used for storm. In fact, the meaning of the word is actually a shaking or a commotion. It's, it's a Greek word, seismos. And every other time this word is used in the New Testament, it refers to an earthquake. So, so that's the scene that's being paint, painted. It's, it's the storm. It's the shaking. And the third detail that Matthew gives is the boat's being swamped. It literally means that the boat is being hidden or covered by the waves. So, so that if you can imagine, when, when the boat is between these waves, you can't see the boat. It's being swamped. And so this is a great storm. It's not just a normal storm. It's a great storm. There, there's chaos all around this boat. And whereas we might expect everyone on the board to be trying to devise a plan to survive, or, or, or what's our plan of action, Matthew tells us that he, that is Jesus, was asleep. There's a contrast, but he was asleep. In the midst of the storm, Jesus, tired as he was from all the teaching and healing that, that consumed his days, he was fast asleep on the boat in the middle of this chaotic storm. And, and so that's the scene, but, and, and it may seem unthinkable to us, 
especially those with young kids. And we're like, if a kid gets to sleep, you got to tiptoe out and don't even, don't even close the door because that click wakes them up. But here's Jesus fast asleep in the middle of this chaotic storm. And as unthinkable as it may seem that someone could sleep so soundly in the midst of a great storm, this contrast, this apparent unsuitability of Jesus' actions in the midst of the storm is exactly what Matthew wants us to recognize. Namely, Jesus could sleep. Yes, he was tired. He was human and got tired, but he could sleep in safety. He could rest securely because his trust was in the Lord. I mean, that's a mark of one who can sleep in peace is one who trusts the Lord. That, that's all over the Old Testament. And so in light of the chaos around, the disciples were filled with fear and anxiety, and Jesus slept peacefully. Same storm, same experience. Some are afraid, one is sleeping peacefully. And so the disciples, they, they recognize Jesus sleeping not as a sign of trust, do they? The, the other gospels record that they're afraid. They're like, he doesn't even care about us. So, so they wake him up. Verse 25. They understand his, his, his sleeping as a lack of care, actually. Save us, Lord. Help, save us. We are perishing. We are dying. I often wonder, what was the time? How, how long was it before they woke Jesus up? And, and how did they decide who got to wake him up? Now, we don't know, but we do know eventually the storm was too frightening for them and they couldn't stand it any longer, so they woke him up. And what's fascinating here is that several of these disciples had previously made their living on the Sea of Galilee. A handful of these were professional fishermen, and they had certainly seen their fair share of storms on the Sea of Galilee. And surely they were able to withstand giving into their fears the longest. But even them, even these seasoned veteran fishermen, eventually reached the limit and said, Yeah, we got to wake him up. This is, I've never seen this before. And I say it's fascinating because, as one commentator puts it, in the midst of the terrible storm, these experienced commercial fishermen turned to the carpenter for help. When, when their skill was unavailing, they called on one whose training had been in the carpenter shop. Isn't that fascinating? They know enough about this one sleeping that, that if anyone can help, it's him. And so they cry out to him, save us. And so we, we do recognize disciples show at least some, some amount of faith in that they cry out to him for help. And that, that is some evidence of faith, but their faith is still lacking. Notice how Jesus responds in verse 26. They wake him up and he said to them, why are you afraid, O, little, o you of little faith? Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Unlike, unlike me, when awakened from a nap, Jesus doesn't rebuke them for, for disturbing him. Why are you waking me up? I'm so tired. If you want me to heal more, you got to let me sleep. And he's not frustrated with him for waking him up. He rebukes them because of their lack of faith. Why are you afraid, you of little faith? Which means from Jesus' perspective, the disciples woke him up. They were afraid because they lacked faith. There's a connection here between fear and faith. There is a connection. There's no other way to understand the question that Jesus asks. Why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? Then Jesus, having addressed the disciples and their lack of faith, then addresses the storm. Verse 26, then he rose and he rebuked the wind and the sea. And there was a great calm. Mark tells us, he said, peace be still. All Matthew says, he rebuked it and there was a great calm. And so remember this scene of chaos Right? There's chaos all around. These veteran fishermen are afraid of their, for their lives. And Jesus stands up, speaks a word, and it's over. Just like that. 
Jesus speaks his word and the wind and the waves obey. There is great calm and it's not as though, oh, well, well, the storm passed by. This calm isn't a result of nature running its course. This calm is the direct result of the sovereign over creation commanding its course. Be still and it listens. And as disciples see this take place before their very eyes, and as Matthew's audience reading or hearing this gospel account, they would not miss the significance of what had just happened in that boat on the Sea of Galilee because in their worldview, in the Jewish worldview, in the biblical view, there was only one person who governed the sea. There's only one who is sovereign over creation. From their perspective, it was only the Lord himself who ruled the raging sea and stilled the rising waters, Psalm 89.9. And even the event of the Old Testament, the salvation that they experienced, the parting of the Red Sea, even in that, though Moses is the one who sticks out his, his, the staff, even in that great act, the Lord is the one who's worshipped for rebuking the sea. It is the Lord who commands and controls the sea. And so the reality is water, wind, and waves only obey the rebuke of its creator. And so in this scene on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus shines forth, not simply as the means by which God commands the wind and the sea. Rather, Jesus shines forth as the creator who commands the wind and the sea. We, we see the divine nature, the full deity on display. Jesus is doing things that only God can do. And when the men in the boat, the disciples see this, they are astonished. Look at verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? Or one account, who is this that even winds and sea obey him? What's interesting is Matthew refers to disciples in the boat as the men, right? He, He refers to them as disciples almost every other time. But here in verse 27, the men, there's not other men, there's just the disciples. But he says, the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this? And I think Matthew wants us to get that. Their astonishment is that this man in the boat with them can command the wind and the sea. The men in the boat stand over against the one man whom the wind and the sea obey. The point that Matthew is wanting to drive home is that the man Jesus is like the men, yes, but he is not like the men. No. He is a man, yes, but he's also more than the men. He is God in flesh, yes. And so that's the tension that we see here and we'll see later. What sort of man is this? How does a man have this authority? That's a great question. And we, having the benefit of the rest of the New Testament, have the benefit of centuries of of clearly formed Christology. We, We don't often have the same astonishment as the disciples. But here, in the middle of the sea, while the boat gently rocks on a calm sea, these disciples marvel at what they've just seen. And more specifically, they marvel at the one standing in the boat with them. We shouldn't miss that. Well, that leads to a point of application here from this, this first section, which I don't think is too far-fetched. And one of the church fathers, he allegorized this and said, well, the boat is the church and, and the, the disciples are, are the, the Christians in the church. And, and I, I, think there's, I, think there's a, I think there's a sense in which this is true. And so you'll hear this from application. But the application point is simply this. Because Christ is king, no storm is ever truly out of control. Because Christ is king, because the authority of the king, no storm is ever truly out of control. As I thought about these verses and the events that take place here, one question that came up in my mind was, what changed from the time that Jesus was asleep in the middle of the storm to when he was standing in the boat in the middle of the calm sea? 
What changed? More specifically, was Jesus any different in the midst of the storm while he's asleep and after the storm when he's awake? And I ask that question, not because it's a hard answer. Of course, Jesus didn't change. But I ask that question because the implications of the answer get to the heart of the issue. The authority that Jesus exercised to calm the storm was his all the time. He had the authority while he's asleep. And he could have stilled the storm at whatever point he wanted. He could have stilled it in his sleep. The authority didn't come to him as he's awake. The authority is his waking or sleeping, which means that his decision not to calm the storm had more to do with the lack of faith in the disciples than it did with the level of his authority. The storm is just as much under the control of Jesus when he's asleep in the boat as when he stood mightily over a successfully rebuked and calmed sea. Because Christ is king, no storm is ever truly out of control. This is the nature and authority of the king. This is the nature of the authority of the king. And our response is not to question his authority or his ability to calm the storm. He is God. He can do all things. Our response in the midst of chaos and seemingly out of control storms is to trust him. He is the one who not only has all authority, but he is the one who has authority and is trustworthy. And so if you're a Christian, you're not freed from life's storms. Some of you would classify your entire life as a storm. And that's not inconsistent with the Christian worldview. Your whole life may be a storm, but the reality is you have one in the storm who is in control of the storm. And who is sovereign of the storm. He could stop it whenever he wanted, but the fact that he hasn't doesn't mean you shouldn't trust him. It means you should in the midst of it. Faith, D.A. Carson applies it this way. Faith urgently needs to know not so much what Jesus will do or what promises he may have made that are applicable to this or that situation, but what faith urgently urgently needs to know is who Jesus is. Because knowing Jesus is what strengthens faith. Because Christ is king, no storm is truly out of control. Well, second section there, point two, the authority over demons, the second encounter here, verses 28 through 34. So we come to the second event, we see the authority of Jesus exercised not over nature, but over the demonic. We see Jesus showing his authority over Satan and his demons. And whenever this topic comes up, it's important to, to keep a biblically balanced approach to demonic activity and, and to the, the, the topic of spiritual warfare. And so a quote that I, that I often go to in, in his book, it, it's actually a fascinating book on uh, the, the, the chief demon is writing to his nephew, and it's a book by, by C.S. Lewis called Screwtape Letters. And, and so there's this advice from this head demon to this other demon learning. He's teaching him everything, everything he knows about how to, how, to, how to disrupt the faith of the Christians or how to affect the church. And, and at the introduction of that book, C.S. Lewis writes this, writing about, about demonic activity. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. Nah, not important. Doesn't exist. That's an error. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Error. They themselves, meaning the devils, are equally pleased by both errors, Lewis says. And so as we, as we come to this passage, we, we have to walk a line. I mean, the Gospels are filled with demonic activity. 
There are multiple occurrences of demonic possession and controlling of people, and it will not do to pretend that they're not real. That's just a figment of a first century imagination. That will not work. That's denying the sufficiency, the trustworthiness of the scriptures. That will not do. While at the same time, the gospels don't ever spend excessive amounts of time on demonic activity. They don't. I mean, the, the, the letter to the church at Rome, there's all kinds of spiritual warfare, but, but Paul spends the majority of time talking about sin in the believer, the man of flesh. If you want to be scared and you want to address demonic activity, address it in your own sinful heart. And so here in Matthew, demonic possession is mentioned, but it's not mentioned to frighten you or to consume your thoughts or to say, hey, run down rabbit holes. It's mentioned rather specifically here in order to highlight the authority of Jesus over this activity and over Satan himself. And so, so let's look at these verses, recognizing that demon possession is a real thing. Demonic activity is a real thing in our world, and that demons are still subject to the authority of Christ the King, which we'll see clearly on display here. So look at verse 28. Jesus comes to the other side, so they cross the sea, and he comes to the country of the Gadarenes, or Gerasenes, depending on what, what version you're using. Two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And so like the account of the storm on the sea, this scene is also recorded in, in the other three Gospels, in three of the other Gospels. And because of that, there are a few things just to note. First, the, the name, the, the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes, the, no one knows what actual name of this county was or, the, or this country, the, this region. We don't really know. Both, there's two possible ones, and, and maybe there, there's actually some that say, well, it actually refers to the same. We don't really know. The point here is that whichever of these two options it is, it is Gentile territory that Jesus is, is traveling to. He's going to unclean land. And he's going to interact with those who are not part of the house of Israel, which is significant, which is significant for him at this point in his ministry. But second, we recognize the major difference between Matthew's retelling of the story and Mark or Luke's version is that Matthew mentions two demoniacs, whereas Mark and Luke mention one demoniac, one demon-possessed man. So Matthew says there's two men, whereas Matthew and Luke say they're one. So that is a difference between these two. However, just to, to, to recognize that discrepancy can be easily explained. And it's easy, easily explained by recognizing that, that Mark, neither Mark nor Luke, who say there's one, neither one of them say there was only one. They don't say that. They focused on one, but they don't say there's only one. Nothing from their accounts required that there have only been one. And, and so, so, for instance, an example, if I say, I talked to a man in line at Harris Teeter yesterday about his Old Dominion t-shirt. So I could say that. Maybe you saw me there. And if one of you come up to me and say, you're a liar. There were two men in line. I saw you talking to two men. You're lying. I would simply say, I didn't say there weren't two. I said I was talking to one with an ODU shirt on. Just because I say, oh, just because I mention only one man doesn't exclude the possibility of there being more than one man. That, that does justice to why, why Matthew and Luke would say, or Luke would, Matthew would say two and Matthew and Mark would say one. I think that's what's happening here. These are gospel writers who are recounting different events from different perspectives for different purposes. So Matthew wanted to highlight the authority of Jesus. Of course, yeah, there were two and they were both cast out. And that's significant. And so Matthew says, these two demon-possessed men come out to meet Jesus. Not only do they come to them, but they come to him out of the tomb. So they lived among the graves, this unclean place. These unclean spirits dwelt in these men in the tombs. And they are guarding the way. So they're extreme, extremely violent. They, they, they're going to attack anyone who comes their way. They, they have this sense of authority. This is our territory. Don't come. 
If you come our way, we're going to oppose you and hurt you and be violent. And so Jesus approaches these men, come up to him. Verse 29, behold, they cry out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? What are you doing here? What what is there between us? What, What commonality do we have? Why are you here? Have you come here to torment us? before the time. And so it's fascinating. They, they don't, there's no doubt in their mind who this is that's approaching them. The disciples are like, how does this man have authority? The demon's like, hey, there's the son of God. And they say, hey, leave us alone. These demons know who Jesus is and they don't want him interfering with their work. And so they say, have you come here to torment us before the time? Now notice, they recognize his authority over them, don't they? Have you come to torment us? They don't question whether or not he has authority over them, whether or not he can torment them. Their question is related to time. Hey, is now the time you're going to torment us? Because in their mind, on their timeline, the appearing of the Son of God would bring about their their eventual destruction. But at this point in their their story, uh, at this point in the timeline, the demons don't think that time has come. It's like, hey, are you here before before it's time, before us to be eternally destroyed in in a, a pit of fire? Is that what you're here to do? The demons recognized that their ultimate fate would be unpleasant, but they did not want it to come any more quickly than was necessary. And so they questioned the Son of God, as if anything he ever did could be out of sync with timeline, right? Who are they to say what the timeline is? Here's the Son of God. He knows what time it is. And so then, after this brief interaction, verse 30, what a strange verse. I imagine we're just reading this. So, so here's this demonic activity. Verse 30, Matthew adds, Now, a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. Like, what? I, I thought we were having this interaction between these two demoniacs and the Son of God, and now it's like, oh, wait a minute, pan aside, oh, there's, you see those pigs. These poor pigs feeding just like any other day. Which again, th- their presence highlights the Gentile territory that they're in. These pigs would not have been in, in, in Israel. Okay, so this herd of pigs present there, they're there, and they're going to play a part in, an important role because look at verse 31. We see why Matthew brings up that, that strange detail, verse 31. And the demons begged Jesus, saying, if you cast us out, send us into that herd of pigs. And so instead of asking him, hey, why are you here? It's before your time. Now they're saying, hey, if you're going to cast us out, please just, just send us into that herd of pigs. And so we, we see this interaction. They recognize that they are under his authority, that he can do whatever he wants. They're begging with him, begging him, Please send us there. Now, a lot of questions about this scene aren't addressed by the text, which means we have to be okay with certain things left unanswered. Kids, ask your parents questions you have. Some of these, they just don't, it's not answered by the text. Perhaps the pigs are a suitable host for these unclean spirits because of their status as unclean animals. We don't know. But we do see that these demons are clearly at the mercy of the Son of God, which point is driven home by what happens next in verse 32. The demons beg him, The only thing that Jesus says in this section, verse 32, he said to them, go. That's all he says in these verses, go. So they came out and they went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd, which Mark tells us it was 2,000 of them, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the waters. I mean, can you imagine this scene? I mean, one minute there's 2,000 pigs feeding on a hillside and the next they are all heading, limbing-like, one after another, off the hillside into the sea to their death. I mean, there's 2,000 pigs. It's not two. It's not 20. It's not 200. 
It's 2,000, one after the other, after the other, after the other. I mean, that, that's crazy. And, and they're watching. These men, whose pigs they are, are watching them. They're wealthy men who have 2,000 pigs, and they're just watching them all, just over the hill. Now, again, a lot of questions here. I don't have the answers. I mean, it's clear the pigs died. What happened to the demons? Did they die too? If they were destroyed, why did Jesus have to kill all the pigs? Couldn't you just send the demons? I don't know. How long does it take for 2,000 pigs to rush down the steep bank into the sea? Who knows? But what we do know is that these men... The two demoniacs who had been a threat and a danger to this entire region were now delivered no longer a threat. And 2,000 pigs were the cost. But notice, instead of rejoicing in what had just happened, look at the response of the herdmen in verse 33. The herdsmen. They fled. So they go into the city and they tell everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him... Sadly, tragically, they begged him to leave. So these herdmen, herdsmen followed by all the people out of the city, they beg Jesus. They come out to him, they start begging him. Now we may think, maybe they're begging him to heal others or to do more good works. They, that's not what they want. They beg him to leave. Go away. Away from here. You're not welcome here. And while it doesn't explicitly say why they begged him to leave, it's pretty clear, isn't it? That they're now more afraid of Jesus than they were of the two demoniacs. Right? They could deal with the demoniacs because they just had to ignore them. These guys just, had, they just, they just lived in the tombs. Just steer clear of that and you're fine. You could ignore those men. But Jesus, in healing the demoniacs and in bringing about the loss of 2,000 pigs, had become impossible to ignore. They don't know how to, how, to, how to wrestle with this. I think there's the tension here. Who is this? This display of authority is too much for them, and so they beg him to leave. And remarkably, he does. Isn't that scary? He goes away. And in fact, Mark says, the healed man, one of them at least says, can I come with you? I don't want to stay here with you. These people think I'm a freak. They don't want anything to do with me. Can I come with you? And Jesus says, you can't come with me. Go tell them all that I've done for you. And so Jesus leaves. Now, application here, I think before we move to our last section, just to make the point, because Christ is king, we prioritize people over possessions. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I do think it's telling that these people are afraid of Jesus because of what had taken place. They beg him to leave. And, and I think we can recognize that's the wrong response. And one of the reasons that it's wrong is because these townspeople let the loss of 2,000 pigs overshadow the deliverance of two men. Right? That, that is a big ratio, 2,000 to two. And, and maybe in, in some parts of, of our culture, people say that's not even a contest. 2,000 is way more significant. But it's not in Jesus' mind in ministry. Two is more valuable than 2,000. One is more valuable than a billion because one is an image bearer. And Jesus prioritizes these men. Were there not other people in this region who needed divine aid, sicknesses or diseases or other things? Jesus had just exercised his, exercised his total authority over the demonic. And instead of saying, hey, come out more of our people, they say, no, we lost some stuff. So you guys get out of here. They beg him to leave. And so we see the priority of Jesus in his ministry. Although he loves animals, right? Jesus created animals. He loves animals. He doesn't think twice about 2,000 pigs being destroyed in order to save these two image-bearing men. So, so we have to follow his example. We ha- there's no question as to what or who Jesus values more. People are the priority. And I think it's good for us to be reminded of that. It's good for us to consider our priorities. Finally, 
Last section, authority over sin, verses one through eight. So here, this last section, we see this final display. And again, the most significant display of authority from Jesus. And so look there, verse one, they, they leave the region, they get into the boat, they come back to his own town, to his own city. So Jesus is back in Capernaum, where he had earlier in chapter eight healed the centurion servant and, and Peter's mother-in-law and many others. They go back now to his homeland, hometown, his home base. Verse two, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, Matthew, again, he's leaving out details, specifically the, the detail about lowering this paralytic through a hole in the roof. But what Matthew highlights here, and the other gospels do it also, is the faith of the friends. Did you see that? Behold, people bring him paralytic, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, now I think the paralytic's faith is included here, but, but the focus is on their faith, the faith of the friends, which is not much different than the centurion who came in faith saying, hey, you can heal my servant, so please do it. That, that's faith in approaching Jesus asking for, for aid. And so these friends are going to do whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus, their paralyzed friend, because they know that Jesus can heal him. And so Jesus, these, these, these friends, bring this, this paralyzed man, and Jesus, upon seeing their faith, notice what he says. Upon seeing the, the confident display of these friends that Jesus can heal him, Jesus says to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your body is healed. Is that what he says? Right? That would be the logical statement. It would make sense if Jesus, seeing the paralytic being brought to him, would recognize what seemed to be his most urgent need, it makes sense if Jesus said, oh, seeing the faith of friends, take heart, my son, your body's healed. You're not paralyzed anymore. That would make sense, but that's not what Jesus says. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And he says that because, and we mentioned this several weeks ago, there's a connection between sin and suffering. Several weeks ago, we saw all human suffering is a result of sin, whether directly or indirectly. Humans suffer because we live in a sin-stricken world, which means though his sins are not the most apparent need of the paralytic, his sins are the most fundamental need. They're not the most apparent need, but they are the most fundamental need, which is why Jesus addresses that need first. He aims to show that his authority, yes, it extends over sickness, over paralyzation, over all that, but Jesus aims to show that his authority is over sin itself which is a more astounding display of authority than any others in this section. Far greater than the calming of the sea, far greater than the casting out the, the demons. Which is why, look at verse three, this, this display of authority isn't lost on the scribes. So he says, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. In other words, they're saying, wait a minute, only God can forgive sins. In fact, they say that in, in another account. And so they hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. And they say, you can't say that. Only God does that. This man is claiming to be God and he's not. He's blaspheming. That, that's the charge. They recognize Jesus is claiming the authority to do something that only God can do, which is why they ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's what they say in another. Who can do this but God? And Jesus would say, you're exactly right. That is exactly right. We can wholeheartedly agree with that statement. But Jesus, verse 4, knowing their thoughts, right, that's ironic, isn't it? They're, they're saying, well, this man can't be God because, because he, he's claiming to do something only God can do. And they're saying it in their minds, and yet Jesus addresses their thoughts, right? That's something only God can do is read minds. And so he says, knowing their thoughts, why are you thinking this evil in your hearts? Verse 5, which is easier to say? 
Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk. Now, at first glance, that may seem like a trick question. I mean, as we read it, both of these things are impossible for anyone other than God to do, right? Neither healing a paralytic or forgiving someone's sins are effectively accomplished apart from divine action. But I think Jesus' point is which is easier to say. Now, some people disagree with this. I think this is the point. Which is easier to say? Of the two options, which would be easier for someone to say, your sins are forgiven or rise, pick up your bed and walk? Now, the scribes would say only God can do either of these. But for everyone watching, it would be much easier to say your sins are forgiven because that's the only of the two that can be outwardly verified. If, it's hard to tell a paralytic man to rise, pick up his bed, and go home because everyone's watching. Everyone will be able to know whether or not the words have authority or not. It will be verified or it will be disproven immediately. So it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can see. No one can see if that really happened. And so Jesus, I think, poses this question to the scribes in order to establish that it's actually harder to say, get up and walk. Verse 6, and this is why I think this is why Jesus is saying this. Verse 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, turning to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So I think Jesus establishes in the question of verse 5 what's harder to do and says the harder of the two. And he does so so that when the scribes will see, when they see the paralytic get up and walk, they'll know he can do the other thing too. I think that's why he does. So, so he, he exercises this authority to heal the paralytic so that people will know that the harder thing is able to be done by him also. And so they know that he has authority to do both impossible things as the paralytic, verse 7, rises and goes home. He did the hard thing. He did the thing that's visibly verifiable in order to show that he also has the authority to do the invisible thing which is the forgiveness of sins. And so this man who, who comes in, I mean, this man walks out carrying the same mat that he came lying in on. Not only had been physical, he, he physically healed, he had been cleansed from his son, sin. And we, the crowds recognized the significance of what they'd seen. Look at verse 8. And th- this is why I, I grouped all these together. Verse 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, but their fear led them to glorify God who had given such authority both healing a paralytic and forgiving sins, two men. And so they, they, they're afraid and they glorify God because they've never seen anything like this, which leads to our last point of application, which is simply this. Because Christ is king, we can live. And here's what I mean. If all Jesus had done was heal his physical body and not address the deeper issue, this man really wouldn't have been helped that much at all. This man really would not have been helped that much at all. Jesus knows the greatest need of this man, and this man's paralysis led him to the great physician who could heal not only his temporary bodily physical need, but also who could heal his soul. This man could get up and walk away from his encounter with Jesus, confident not just that his physical body was healed, but confident that his transgressions had been forgiven. In the words of Psalm 32, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. This man walked home as a blessed man. He could walk away knowing that he had peace with God. And we too, beholding this authority, we know, knowing that Jesus can forgive sins, we can live as those who have been set free, as those who are truly alive to God, whether we're paralyzed or not. We walk away from these verses We do so knowing without a shadow of doubt, not only that Jesus can forgive sins, but here's the point. He does. He does. You see, all these miracles, 
All the healings and exorcisms and storm calmings, they're all done to confirm the last and greatest miracle, the death and resurrection of this Son of God. And we, beholding the glory of this man who had unparalleled authority, know that he would willingly lay down his life on the cross. And so as we read this and we behold the authority of Jesus, we recognize he didn't come simply to heal or, or to reign or to raise people from the dead. He came to give his life as a ransom for many to forgive sins. And so this ap- last application, if you're here and you're a believer, this is great news for us. Jesus can forgive your sins and he does. He does. Are you burdened by your sin this morning? Have you been struggling all week? Maybe you doubt God's love, his care towards you. Maybe, maybe you wonder, how could God love a wretch like me? I am so messed up. Maybe that's you. Brother or sister, for those of you who are trusting Christ, because of what Christ did, your sins are forgiven. Jesus promises and delivers on that promise. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Jesus can and does forgive sins. He has that authority. I mean, this is a message that the the Apostle Paul proclaimed in Ephesians 1. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Letter to the Colossians. He, that is Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, clarification, the forgiveness of sins. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, rejoice. The Lord is king. If you're here, you're not a Christian. If your life has not been transformed by the resurrection power and authority of Christ the King, if if you're not here this morning trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you must know, I don't care who you are, I don't care what your past is, I don't care what your experience is with the churches, I I don't care about any of that. You should hear proclaimed this morning, Christ died and rose again so that sinners might be forgiven. Christ died and rose again so that sinners might be free from sin and its eternal consequences. Christ died and was rose again so that anyone, anyone who would trust in him would be saved, redeemed, and reconciled to their maker. And so if you're here and you're not trusting in Christ this morning, I'm telling you, you have no permanent or lasting hope apart from the, from the forgiveness of sins that come through Jesus Christ. You don't. You don't have any permanent or lasting hope apart from the forgiveness of sins that comes through Jesus Christ. Because whatever happens here now, you will stand before a creator one day and give an account for what you did. And I can't stand and you can't stand apart from the forgiveness of sins that comes through Jesus Christ. You're gonna, you're gonna stand before the Lord one day. Every single one of you. And hear me say, your hope, my hope is Christ alone. Jesus has the authority to forgive you of your sins. I mean, this this is the message that Peter proclaimed to Cornelius in Acts 10. Everyone who believes in Christ receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. And so my question to you is simply, why refuse? Why, Why must you continue in your unbelief? Why? Repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus and you will receive the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. Let's pray.